With us today is Lisa Headley, Ayurvedic practitioner, founder of the Mayflower Spa. This is Lisa Headley's strategies for dealing with stress. Lisa can also be found at lawlife, L-A-H-life.com on the web. Hello, Lisa. Hey. Today's topic, meditation. Oh. <laughs> oh, exactly. Meditation. So, you know, in the end, I end up telling, um, I, no, not almost, every client that I work with, every person that I meet, I feel like a broken record, I end up talking about meditation. And I end up talking about it because I end up recommending it. Because the greatest antidote to stress, the type of stress that we all experience in our modern lives, is what we call meditation. And I wanted to devote an entire show, and possibly 12 more, to the concept of meditation. What is meditation really? What are we doing? Why should we do it? Is it really beneficial? Is it a fad like green juicing? Is it all good, all bad? Can it be bad? All those questions, because there's so much misinformation out there about what you have to do to be meditating. So I think that that's gotten a little better in the last few years. I mean, when I first was introduced to meditation many, many, many moons ago, I was introduced to it during the era of, um, well, I won't name specific methods, but one method that charges a lot of money and basically tells you that there's no other real way to meditate. It was very rigid like that, and I felt so constrained constricted by the rules and regulations and how much time I had to spend doing it, there was just no way. There was no possible way for me to attach my mind or myself to the idea that I was going to do this practice. I tried. I paid the money. I tried to learn, and I did, learn their method. But, you know, it occurred to me then, and it, now I know the answer, is that there can't possibly be just one way to achieve the benefits of being quiet within yourself. There just can't be. Um, I was young, and I thought, oh, well, these are the experts, and they're telling me, and I was, you know, I, I was a pretty good girl, so I would go, oh, it's an authority figure. They're telling me this is the only way. It must be the only way. So, you know, I've really spent the last probably 15 years looking at all these various things one can do to achieve the same results. I want to sort of back up first and just remind people of the benefits of meditating to start with. And by meditation, we mean sitting quietly with yourself with no distraction from oh the dear. outside world <laughs> for some period of time. Let's not define it more than that. Let's just say that it is a contemplative practice. So when people tell me that they get their meditation while running, I say, great, because I know you can get into a meditative state running, swimming, biking, any of those things. But the fact of the matter is the brain is still on high alert during those activities. Not only are you bathing your body in different kinds of hormones that get released when you're doing physical exertion. But you also, if you're biking, you're on the street, you're looking for cars, you're doing this, you're doing that. If you're swimming, you're still on call. You know, you're, you're, you're still on high alert for certain things. So it's not, strictly speaking, the kind of meditation practice or meditative practice or contemplative practice that is giving you the benefits that Western medicine is now identifying. So what I've just said there is, Yes, you can find a certain amount of peace from your day-to-day -day stressors by doing those things. But the 
scientific evidence, if you really want to attach yourself to real Western evidence that something works, is based on a more classical sense of a meditative practice. Specifically, the, you know, the big study that everybody quotes was really done by a team of neuroscientists at Harvard. And they took a group of subjects. I'm going to get this wrong in the specifics, but I'm basically telling you what they did. They took a group of subjects. They, they taught them a um, mindfulness meditation practice that was supposed to take them 45 minutes. They also urged them to behave in a mindful way throughout the day. So if you were going to take a walk, be mindful about your walk. Try and keep your mind present in the activity that you're doing. So that was the admonition to their subjects. I think they found that on average the subjects really spent like 26 minutes doing their practices, not 45. So that, you know, <laughs> even there. And do people know how to keep their mind? Uh... Ah, well, we'll get to that. Oh, good, that's good. A, if that's a different story, that's a whole other story. Oh, that's story. another why, show. Well, it's why I called the show 12 Ways to Meditate because there's actually 12,000, but I figured I'd boil it down. You narrow it down? You giving felt like some curating? good examples, right. right? But in this case, the Harvard study is based on mindfulness meditation practice. It was made popular, the name, that name, by um, John Kabat-Zinn, who I think was attached to Harvard and has his own clinic up there at Boston at Mass General. I'm not completely sure where he is right now, but he developed a method that was very easy for Westerners to follow, which basically involves doing a body scan, relaxing different parts of the body, and then watching the breath. So in, answer, in short answer to your question, that is the, tr the sort of gold standard in Western terms of a doable contemplative practice. Very different from what you think of when you think of monks in orange robes who sit for hours and hours and hours a day. You know, we are householders. We are people who have a life. In, in Sanskrit, there's a word. We are grihasta. We are not reclusive um, monks who separate ourselves from life and the world to pursue our spiritual practices. So let's not pretend we are because we can't be that. And if we are, then we have to quit our jobs and dedicate our lives to that. So that's not happening for most of us. Most of us can't even get our minds around finding five minutes to sit quietly with no distractions. So let's not put an added structure on our head. It's not possible. So let's think of ourselves as people who are able to do a simple contemplative practice for 20 minutes, maybe 20 minutes twice a day. Mindfulness meditation practice, as I say, was created in this construct, in this Western construct, and it's very highly effective and in fact intersects a lot of the more um, esoteric practices that we call meditation, but I think it extracts and distills a practice that's very easy to do. So, like I say, and you can get recordings of it, or you can just do it yourself. Relax your big toe, relax your second toe, third toe, fourth toe, fifth toe, relax your right foot, left foot, right leg, left leg, relax your entire body. You know, when you, when you run through those kinds of body progressive relaxation, and then you are in this relaxed state. And then you can just watch your breath in and out. If you listen, you know, obviously you're not watching it. It's, that's not literal. You're listening to your breath. You're listening to the qualities of your breath. You're paying attention to your own breath. It becomes your own kind of metronome. So it's a very simple sort of closed system. You can do it all yourself, or you can do it as a guided meditation and then sit quietly. But back to my point which is that this Harvard study looked at this, and what they found was that 
the actual brain structure was affected by meditation. That it wasn't just that these subjects, which they did, felt much more restful, peaceful, less stressed out, their blood pressure normalized, some cholesterols regularized. Things were better, more balanced in their lives. But they looked at the brain and they looked at the various parts of the brain. So, for example, and I may get some of these parts wrong too because I'm just speaking out of my head, but the frontal lobe, which is, you know, the very highly evolved part of the brain, which is responsible for planning and emotions and self-conscious awareness, right? So during meditation, that frontal cortex tends to shut down, tends to go quiet, so that part of the brain that is so engaged in whether you've got a text message or whether if you're running, that part of your brain is still engaged. If you're biking, if you're swimming, you're still engaging that part of the brain to some extent because you have to. Your body knows that it has to because your body is moving through space. It's moving on a busy road. It's swimming in a pool, which means that if you stop paying attention, you could bonk your head and drown. You know, you can't shut that down completely. And that's one of the big things that they saw when they did the MRIs on these people's brains. So that's that. The parietal lobe, which is the part of the brain that processes sensory information, so that's what's going on in the surrounding world. It, you know, orients you in time and space. Again, when you're running that part of your swimming, that part of your brain is active because it has to be. When you are in a quiet, sitting on a cushion in a safe place in a room, that slows down, okay? Then you've got the thalamus, which is that, I don't know, I've always had it described as the kind of a gatekeeper. It focuses your attention by sort of funneling the data into the brain and stopping other signals. So it's like a gatekeeper. Um, so again, meditation, they find, slows that gatekeeper's activity. So you've got the gatekeeper slowing down. You've got the sensory processing part of your brain slowing down. You've got the part responsible for planning and thinking and doing and worrying and da-da-da-da-da, slowing down. And so you can see that the whole system is, is being quietened. So when you ask me or when people say to me, I can't do that, I can't slow my brain down, the answer is, well, yes, you can. You, but, but you have to start to some extent by thinking to yourself, okay, this is not a job that I have to learn to do. I'm not going to flip a switch and shut my brain down. Because that is too daunting for people well, to think that way. You might want to just slow your roll for a second because um, I am staggered at the number of people who default to, and, and I say this in the most friendly way, they default to if, they, they, if that's what they think they have to do. And I spend a lot of time, and I'm not even in this business, so to speak. I spend a lot of time saying, that's, you know, you've just chosen a really ambitious, how are you going to go from high, high, high to nada? Mm -hmm. Because there's nothing, there's, there's no, you've got, you've, got, you've got to step it down. You've got to learn how to do it. And this is I, I, constantly the assumption that you can go from where you are to not in so many different things is I, I'm, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but I, I think that it's inefficient. Yes. I, mean, I will say, though, that when you have learned some techniques, and that's why I say there's 12 ways to meditate because there's different techniques. And I, who try to sit every day, 
I don't do the same thing every day because some days my brain just says, oh, I'm not going to do that today. I'm just going to skip out. And then I have to trick myself. So I think, oh, okay, but I'll do this different type of thing today. And that usually gets me to sit. And by the time I've been sitting for 10 of my 20, 25 minutes, I'm usually back into just a very simple, slow breathing, watching my breath by default because I've learned it and your body likes it. It's a very seductive place to be because it's quiet and it's calm and it's restful. So you are 100% right. You can't go from ah to enjoying the peace. It just doesn't work that way. But what you can do is you can practice and practice and practice and learn it and so that it becomes, as we say, a tool in your toolbox so that if you can just convince yourself to get to the cushion, then the practice takes over. So what I'm telling you is important because I'm telling you that I, who am A, one of the most multitasking, busiest cuckoo people you probably know, have taught myself over the years to be able to become somebody that meditates every day. And what so I'm I, saying is, this is the, the, the key aspect here, is that you have taught yourself over time. Correct, Amundo. That's, that's all I'm saying. You can't, Correct. There's no and quick I've, switch. And, and it's I've just found practice. sweet and seductive ways to get myself there. Because if you don't follow the calling of something that feels sweet and seductive, you're not going to do it. That's, that's reality period. Which is why when so many people set as resolutions, and a lot of people now say, well, one of my resolutions is I'm going to meditate this year. And that's like the first one out the window, that along with I'm losing 10 pounds by March. You know, you, you can't just flip the switch, as you say. It just doesn't work that way. What you have to do is find ways that draw you in <laughs> and give you a sense of, oh, I can do this. I'll be able to do it. But I just want people to get seduced, really, by this understanding that uh, what this study demonstrates is that you can change your brain structure. You can actually change what's going on in there with these practices. So that alone should be enough to make people go, ah, let's go. You know, it's no longer, oh, well, it's just a bunch of spiritual goop, 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 goops doing this practice that everybody says I should be doing. It's you know, codified in our Western way of thinking in a way that's really impressive. So, you know, the simplest way to make to, to make a practice is just to get a tape where somebody, and, and I have all those yoga nidras that I offer for people because yoga nidra is yogic sleep. And it's basically a series of guided instructions that take you deeper and deeper and deeper into a relaxation state. So it is guided. There's someone there holding your hand, which is a great way to start if you just don't feel like you can do it yourself. So Yoga Nidra, as I say, I have recorded ones. There's other recorded ones out there. I cannot speak for the quality of them because I don't know them all. Um, so that's a good way. And what that most Yoga Nidra practices tend to start with this progressive relaxation, kind of rotating the consciousness around the body actively practice, which is very good. You know, it really works. When my kid can't sleep, I do a guided relaxation, progressive body relaxation with her. And then at the end, I get her to start paying attention to her breath. And I use my kid as an example just because she's, you know, 11. And she usually looks at me and goes, mommy, please, with all your gobbledygook stuff. I don't want to hear about it. But that's just simple. And it works. And she doesn't feel like I'm introducing her to gobbledygook. So that's uh, number one. Another, 
of my sort of 12 top faves is just to do sort of um, three-part breathing. And the reason I like the three-part breathing idea is because it gives you something to do within the context of doing nothing. So you're watching your breath. Because a lot of people say to me, I don't know what you mean, watch my breath. So I give you something to do to watch your breath. Do it in three parts. Breathe. That's one. Two. Three. So the first breath is taking it just in your nostrils. The second, number two, is watching it fill up your lungs. And number three is feeling it go so deep that your belly pouches out. And then three in reverse. The tummy comes in, the lungs empty out, and the air is expelled completely through the nose. So it gives you just enough to do and a rhythm of watching the breath come in and out. So it creates uh, what I like to say, like a sweet and seductive rhythm and a way to watch your breath. So that's a beautiful one. Um, Then there's a couple of guided meditation practices. Again, I have them think as well snaps I have them recorded there's other ways to find them one is called so hum one is called empty bowl and again they are they're kind of tricks you know they're guided ways to teach you to pay attention to the way the breath comes into the body and goes out so so hum for example is you visualize the sound of so as you breathe in and hum as you breathe out. So you don't say it out loud, you just hear it internally. So on the inhale, hum on the exhale. And again, it becomes a rhythm. It gives you a rhythm. It helps you watch your breath. An empty bowl is a little more complicated, but it's the same idea, watching your breath. And then you get to a whole series of meditative practices that um, are sort of more targeted. So for example, Um, something we call the who am I meditation. So if you're having that feeling of being adrift and you don't know what you want out of life, you create a meditation where you repeat the words I am as you breathe in and out. And then after a few minutes, you ask yourself, what do I want? So you're just laying questions into the sort of peaceful place of your mind. This is slightly more sophisticated because you already have to be able to sit You know, you already have to have done enough practicing so that you feel comfortable sitting and breathing and then asking yourself questions. Can I ask one quick question to interject? Yes. Um, As far as a, you know, just for a listener, how do you, before you get there, teach yourself to put down your device? (laughs) I don't know. You threaten yourself with a bonk on the head. I don't know. But but because I do notice that people will put it down and then, without even consciously being aware of it, pick it up again. And you can't even get to the place where you can sit and be still if you are bringing that with you. Okay. The The first and most important thing is you've got to create your space. Period. There's no way around it. You have to create your space. And in your space, meaning your meditation space, there are no devices. So... For example, I'll use myself. I have my, I think we talked about this in a couple of shows ago and over the years. I have um, a meditation cushion and this darling little rug, and I just love the way they feel uh, under me. So that's the trick in itself. I love those things. So they're in my closet, believe it or not. It's the only quiet place in my house. And that's my space. So when I pull that out into the middle of the closet space, my little rug with my pretty little cushion that's it. That's like a, like a Pavlovian dog example. That automatically is a sort of creates a different sense in me. And I never, 
ever, ever bring my phone or a computer or a real telephone into that space. So, period. You simply don't have it. And for most of us, we have to create that kind of, you know, call it a sacred space because that's what it is. You're sacrificing, the word sacred comes from sacrifice, you're sacrificing all of your modern technological connections to the cause of your relaxation. Right? Yeah. Um, and for a minute, you could build up to it, too. Don't you think a gradient, you know, in, in other words, don't expect to be able to do that for 25 minutes on day one of your right, commitment Right, 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 right. Yes, I'm, in terms of time, yes. But in terms of creating your space and not allowing those things in there, that is cold turkey. That's your very first thing. You must do that. And then you have to set yourself up for success. So pick a way. And if it's going to be that you're going to sit or lay in your space with a yoga nidra guided relaxation every other day for a week, that's a great place to start because then you've got a friend with you, as it were, that's getting you there that you'll pay attention to. And usually what happens is after you've done that a while, it starts to feel so good that you want to revisit that place of feeling good. That's how you, that's why I keep using the word seduce. You have to sort of seduce yourself into um, meditating, into these practices. And Which is different than tricking work. yourself. Well, yeah, it is. It is, actually. Well, yeah. it's, it's slightly different because you're trying to do it by being kind and positive. In other words, do you like the way this feels? Do you like the way this smells? You, you, you do it from a positive place if you could do it the way you want to rather than, okay, you've got to cope with this, so here. Now, that's not an excuse. i sorry. That's not an invitation to go out and build a meditation room, but it's, right. it gives you a little bit of latitude to yes. customize it to your specifications. Yes, exactly. And so then, you know, I mean, I just want to proceed here. So then you've got like sort of that kind of thing. Um, you can ask yourself all kinds of questions as you go drifting into your meditation. What do I want to see in my world? You know, you could ask yourself questions like that and you'd be amazed at how many answers come to you by the time you're done with the meditation. So this is another layer and another benefit that when you drop questions like little drops uh, into your peaceful meditation pond, it is amazing what comes back. It's amazing how you can come out of your meditation, start going about your day, and you just sort of realize, oh, there's the answer to that question. It's not like this big dramatic thunderbolt that says, boom, here is the answer to all your life's questions. It's a subtler thing where you just feel more in tune and in touch with what you need and how you can get it. It's an amazing thing. It's magic. I'll tell you, it's magic and it works. But that's another conversation for, for later about meditations because I just want to say there's also loving kindness meditation, which is a beautiful meditation where you simply start with the repetition of a phrase. Now, repetition of a phrase or a mantra is a very effective and very important way to get into meditation. And I do teach clients a form of meditation where I pick a mantra for them based on a bunch of things that are personal to them, and I give them a mantra which they can work with, which is another way to do it. It's like watching your breath, except it's vibrational, and there's a whole theory in the universe of, you know, we are all made from vibration, and so if you can find a sound that you resonate with, that helps you dive deeper into the peacefulness that is your essential self. So that's a beautiful thing, and that is another type of meditation. But in loving-kindness meditation, you use the mantra that is simply, may I be happy, 
may I be peaceful. So whenever your attention wanders, you gently let those thoughts go. And instead of coming back to breath, you come back to that mantra. And um, that's a beautiful, beautiful one. Thank you very much, Lisa Headley, Ayurvedic practitioner, founder of the Mayflower Spa. This is Lisa Headley's Strategies for Dealing with Stress. Lisa can also be found at lalife, L-A-H, life.com. Hamara Sukun